never underestimate God's power to get stuff done. Yeah. I mean, how extraordinary is that? It's one thing after another, either this is impossible or that's impossible. Or I mean, it's almost like his whole life is full of impossibilities becoming possible. That's extraordinary. Um, if you if you look at some of that stuff, you'd say, well, how come all the impossible stuff always happens to him? Well, you know what? Collectively, it's happening to all of us all the time. If you took all our stories and compiled them together, it would look an awful lot like scripture. Isn't that odd? And then all of a sudden, if you began to convey our story, the Bridgeway Christian story to someone in Africa, they're going to wonder why Jesus only moves in Rockland. And why he only moves in one church. You see what I'm saying? My point is, God's always on the move. He's always doing the extraordinary. He's always making uh, the impossible possible. And he's diving in and wooing people to himself that have no knowledge of him. Then he's going in and he's healing people and he's saving people and taking care of people and, and doing things that you never thought would ever happen. Don't ever discount God's power. Because uh, there, nothing is impossible for God. Amen? Amen. Let's get into scripture today. You're going to need to have a Bible if you don't have one. So take out your Bibles. Find the book of Ephesians. If you don't have one, raise your hand. And we'll have the guys get one to you. So keep your hand up until you get one. Also take out the handout sheet that is in your bulletin and we can begin. We have an awful lot to cover. Uh, you will notice that we are starting part one of a five part series through the book of Ephesians. I've taught this book in this church before. However, that was in 1998. So I don't know how many of you were here. That was 10 years ago. So last time I did it, I did it in a 16 part series. We're doing it in five. So this is going to be called the Cliff Notes version of the book of Ephesians. I'm going to drive every theologian insane today. And I'm going to do it on purpose because I'm going to be skimming over one of the most thick theological passages in all of Scripture in here in chapter one of Ephesians, and I'm not going to be addressing the details. OK, uh, I have one specific purpose of the message today, and that is encouragement. The goal is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, you are going to walk out of here more pumped up and more excited about what God's done for you than ever before. If you are not quite yet a believer, if you do not quite yet uh, believe you have a relationship with Jesus Christ or you haven't engaged, you're going to feel at the beginning like an outsider saying he keeps talking about this is all the stuff of the Christians. I need you to know this very clearly. This can all be yours. This is not about keeping you as an outsider. This is an invitation. This is allowing you to be part of the family of God. Today is the day of salvation. Today's the day you get to engage with God if you Move in your heart and say, yes, Lord, and begin to make him not only savior of your life, but Lord of your life. Do you understand? This is not an exclusionary thing. Even though all these blessings are for believers, my question to you is, have you or have you not engaged with your Lord? And I don't believe that you should walk out of this room without doing so, because that is the most important decision you'll ever make. Is it easy? Absolutely not. It's nothing less than absolute surrender. However, there is no other way to live. Amen. Amen. So take a look at that handout sheet. You'll notice that today as part one of Ephesians is entitled glorious riches. What true believers have in Christ. So the question is begged. Why are we studying the book of Ephesians in the year of world impact? Well, in a very similar fashion to Proverbs, which we just finished a 10 part series in. I told you that we studied Proverbs because as Christians, we're going out and sharing the gospel all over the world. That's what 
we are called to do. However, if our lives are chaotic and we're not living in line with the responsibility and wisdom that God has given us, it completely shoots our testimony. So we talked about living wisely. Well, in the same way, if you go out and try to share the gospel of Christ and you look like somebody ran over your puppy dog all the time and all you do is have no joy and you walk around completely bummed out and all you say is, I'm a Christian, now my life's more miserable. Okay, if you keep doing that, no one wants anything to do with your God. Because why in the world would you wish that upon your worst enemy that if suddenly you become a Christian and your life is worse? That's ridiculous. It's not accurate. No, God doesn't make a cakewalk. And yes, it is difficult to live life and try to live in a way that is a manner worthy of Christ. I agree. It's difficult. However, it's worse without him. Do you really want to face all of life's challenges alone? See, the point is, there is joy in Christianity, and we need to be reminded of the joy of our salvation, and that's what we're doing today. You see, living the life of a Christian is very similar to receiving a gift, a multi-layered gift that you, a package is slid over to you on the day of your conversion. You open it up hoping that what's inside is forgiveness for sins. You open it up and, hey, look at that. Forgiveness for sins. It's what I've always wanted. How exciting. And you're really excited about it. Then all of a sudden you look and there's another layer. You peel back the next layer and it says something like extravagant grace for living. Oh, that's awesome. Then you open another layer and it says what? Power to fight against spiritual forces. Oh, that's incredible. I didn't even know that was in there. And then you open another layer and it talks about uh, wisdom, how to live life. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know that was there. And you peel back another layer and it keeps going on and on and on and on and on. That is what keeps the joy of salvation alive. Well, we're going to be peeling back some layers today and reminding you what you've already opened in the last few years. See, here's the problem. Heaven is described in Scripture as a God party. Okay? God party. It's supposed to be something you look forward to. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be incredible. And it's the bridegroom, bride concept of a wedding party. And there's all these exciting concepts used. And we've made it into a theological debate where we go, well, who's going to be at the party? Well, when did I get to go to the party? Who gave me the invitation? Why did I get the invitation? Who else is going to come? Why aren't they coming? What's going on? What's wrong with the guest list? And we've all of a sudden argued our way into not wanting to go to the party because now the party's a big drag. Okay? That is not at all the point. That is not the point of heaven. That's not the point of scripture. And we need to get back to the basics and say, hold on a second. There is joy in our salvation. Amen? Amen. So we're going to dive into that. Look at the top of your page. There's a quote there by the Wycliffe Bible Commentary about this very passage. They said this. The believer here is seen as the recipient of all spiritual blessings. Hence, he has no need to seek additional blessings from God. He must instead appropriate the ones that have already been provided. What does that mean? It means to fill in the blank in front of you. It's about as simple as I could say it. Prayer for understanding is more appropriate than prayer for more. Prayer for understanding of what you have as a Christian is more appropriate than prayer for more. Unfortunately, Christians, I hear this day in and day out. God, give me more of this. Give me more wisdom. Give me more patience. Give me more strength. Give me more. And it says, give me more, give me more, give me more concept. Wait a second. God could go, hey, look, there's a whole pile of strength over there you haven't even used yet. Why do you keep asking me for more? I've already loaded you with more than you'll ever use in your whole life. Why do you need more? I think the prayer is, God, open my eyes. Because I want to see what in the world you've already given me. So I think that's a bit more appropriate. 
Would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It's page 827 in the Bible's handed to you. 827 should make it a little bit faster. You're going to go almost all the way to the right in your Bibles because it's New Testament. We pick it up in Ephesians 1, 1. And it begins with a very simple phrase about the identity of its author, Paul the Apostle. And it says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Would you pray with me for the word? Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes that we might see you? That we might see what we need to pull out of this, that we might see the joy of our salvation and be reminded of the gifts that you have lavished upon us. May we leave here feeling like spoiled kids and happy about what has occurred. In Jesus' name, amen. What is Paul's identity? He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. What does an apostle mean? It means apostolos in Greek means what? One sent out with delegated authority. In other words, an ambassador, right? And he said, the only reason you should listen to me is I've been sent by God and it wasn't my idea. That's the next phrase, by the will of God. In other words, it was God's idea why I'm here. But remember, every time we open up a brand new book in Scripture, we always have to ask the question, why do I care? Okay? well, that's called background information. You need to know who wrote it, who they're writing to and why it was written in order to understand what we're about to study for the next five weeks. So who is Paul the Apostle? Well, Paul the Apostle didn't start out as Paul. Who did he start out as? Saul. Saul of Tarsus. All right. So we got a good Jewish boy who grew up in a town called Tarsus. Now, Tarsus was the Roman capital of what we think of as now the region of modern day Greece. It was called Cilicia at the time. I've had an opportunity to go there and they have a little hole in the ground. They say, this is Paul's house. It's really not. It's called marketing and it's not. It's certainly a bunch of rocks and in holes. It's not really all that impressive. But I got a chance, and it's pretty much a, a small town that looks like not a big deal. In Paul's day, it was extraordinary. As a matter of fact, they were on the map for their educational system. There was a university there that rivaled that of Athens, Greece. Now, Athens is known as the big dog, right? Well, they had a university, U of T, right? University of Tarsus. And so you'd either go to that one or you'd go to Athens and they would go back and forth as to who was more brilliant. They had one of the most powerful scholars of the world by the name of Gamaliel, who indeed Paul studied under. Now, he was Saul as he was coming up under this. And because it was a Roman capital under the Roman law, that made him born as a Roman citizen. That's very important because it unlocks certain doors and it changed the course of Paul's life forever because he was a Roman citizen. Now, understand, under the Roman law, there was very much of a Hellenistic culture. Hellenism is uh, the Greek thought. So Paul would have grown up understanding all the Olympic game type concepts. That's why whenever you read his stuff, he talks about wrestling and running and the race and the fighting. He's using all these words because they were common in his day. At the same time, he was not just educated in a secular institution, but he was raised in the house of a Pharisee. Y'all remember what a Pharisee is? Okay, Pharisees were basically people that would make us look like losers, okay? Because they did this whole Jewish thing to a T. 
They knew all the dietary laws. They adhered strictly to everything. Ceremonial washings, this, that, the other thing. They wore the right clothes. They even had visible stuff on their heads and on their hands that would show how dedicated to God they were. And they did everything perfect on the outside. But they were also the crew that Jesus had the biggest problem with. Right? He's, they're the only crew that Jesus really went head to head with. Why? Because the outside looked awesome, but the inside was nothing. Their hearts were totally detached from God, and that ruins the whole point. Well, this is a household that Paul was raised in. If you want to know how a good Jewish boy was raised back in the ancient world, here's what the Talmud suggests. The Talmud is the case studies of the oral law of the Jewish people. You go, what does that mean? I don't know. Here we go. I'm kidding. I do know. I just don't want to talk about it. So there. <laughs> this is how it works. You take your child at four years old and you start their instruction, teaching them about the Lord. It's at five years old that they begin to study intense Bible study, meaning Old Testament Torah kind of concepts. At 10, they're to study the oral law known as the Mishnah. At 12, they have their bar mitzvah and the boys become a son of the law, which means you're responsible for all your actions. At 13, you are to memorize, know, and fulfill the Ten Commandments for the rest of your life. No big deal there. Then at 15, you're to study the Talmud, which, once again, the case law for the Mishnah or the oral law. That sounds like a blast. And then at 18, you're married on your own, start your own life. Okay, that begs the question, was Paul married? If all great Pharisees and all great Jewish boys were married at 18, why did Paul then say when he wrote his letters later in life, I wish you were as I am, which is unmarried? Well, that's a big debate amongst scholars. There's three common views. The first one is that Paul was a widow, that his wife had passed away. So by the time he wrote, he was unmarried. The other guess is that he was, his wife divorced him at conversion. When he converted from Judaism to Christianity, his wife then left him. That's another guess. The third guess is that there was a small strain of Pharisees that thought they'd take it up one notch. That even though being married was what all good Pharisees did, what if we could be one more extreme and we'd be like a monk and we'd never get married because we're totally devoted to God. And other people believe that was Saul's choice. Regardless, he was unmarried when he began to write the 13 books of the New Testament, at least, that he wrote that we have. He is the most prolific author inside the New Testament. Now, he didn't just become an average, ordinary Pharisee, did he? No, he called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee in the strictest sense. As a matter of fact, he got a neat little nickname called Christian Killer. Okay, when your whole identity is known for being the most hardcore Pharisee and what you do is run around and kill Christians, you're pretty much of a tough guy. As a matter of fact, the first time he shows up in Scripture in the book of Acts, he's still Saul of Tarsus, and what's he doing? He's holding everybody's jacket so they can throw rocks at a young kid named Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. So they're throwing rocks at a young man to kill him. And Saul is hanging out and holding their jackets going, you missed one. Make sure to hit him over here. He's still wiggling. Hit him over here. That's what he does for a living. Now, he would get papers and travel around all over the region and throw Christians in jail and then kill them and do any type of persecution that he could. This is his life. Well, then in AD 32, the year that the Lord raised from the dead, something happened. You all remember that? He was on his way to cause more damage in a city called Damascus. He's on his horse trotting along and what? 
bright light. Jesus knocks him off his horse. Said, what is your problem? Said something to the degree of, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, I don't even know who you are. And Jesus said, I know that's kind of the problem. They ended up having a discussion about it. And through a series of oddities, he changes from Saul, the Christian killer, to Paul, the Christian missionary. Well, that's a pretty dramatic conversion. All right. So immediately he withdraws into the area of Arabia for three years, Galatians tells us. While he's in this, he's still doing work. Now, remember, he was raised up in the family business, which was what? Tent making. When you work around an agricultural society with a lot of nomadic peoples, they need tents. So his family made excellent tents out of coarse goat hair fibers. So he would make these tents and that's how he would make a living. That's why you hear the phrase tent maker is from that. Well, what's fascinating about his three years in Arabia is that the biggest group in that area that he would have worked for were called the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were traveling merchants. They would trade internationally. Well, what's fascinating about that is if you ever look, Paul did four major missionary journey trips. We all know him about Paul's missionary journeys, right? They always seem so random. Do you realize they're almost identical to the Nabataean trade routes? In other words, when that's your client and all you do is engage with these people, you got all their maps and all their knowledge. So when you go out to do ministry, what are you going to do? Follow the natural trade routes. Because we always look at this stuff and we go, it's so random. Why do you go here? Why do you go there? Because it was on the map. That's why. So it's pretty basic stuff, but it all begins to tie together. Well, then, sure enough, he tries to join in with the church. How do you think that went? Not real hot, okay? When you're a Christian killer guy, I don't care what you said your conversion experience was. I'm not allowing you around my family. Okay? You've done enough damage. You've killed enough people that I know. No, I don't want to be friends with you. So he had a hard time getting into the church. As a matter of fact, he was pretty well stonewalled until a man stepped out of his comfort zone, a Hellenistic Jew that was a very charismatic man by the name of what? Barnabas. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, stepped out of his comfort zone, went and found Paul and said, I'll take you under my wing. Let's go. They went to a city called Antioch and they established a church there where it's the first time they ever used the word Christians. Well, that's their crew. It was not until 17 years after his conversion did he receive the right hand of fellowship from Peter, James and John. He had to wait 17 years to be part of the team. That's a long time. But it didn't stop him. He was doing ministry all the while. When he started out in his missionary journeys, he was on his second missionary journey when he came cruising through a location in Turkey of a city by the name of Ephesus, where we get this book named the Ephesians. He goes through and he had just met a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who are also tent makers back in a city called Corinth. He travels into Ephesus, sees it's a great place, tells Priscilla and Aquila, hey, you guys settle here. I'm going to go on. And I'll meet up with you later. After three days, he moves on. It's on his third missionary journey when he comes through the city of Ephesus that he sets up shop. And for three years, he lived in the city and had a vibrant, powerful, extraordinary ministry. What do I mean by extraordinary? I mean weird, creepy stuff happened. That's what I mean. I mean that you know how you always hear stories in the Bible about so-and-so who laid hands on someone and then they prayed and they healed and the people are all better. You've heard that. Okay, well, it takes it to a whole nother level. It says not only was all that occurring, but as a matter of fact, they would take Paul's handkerchiefs 
across town, lay them on somebody sick, and it would make the sick person well. That's weird. You don't go, hey, I'm kind of busy today, but here's my bandana. Take it off. Go ahead and take that to him. And then they run over there and lay it on him. I mean, it's just weird, right? That's how extraordinary God was moving through this city. This is the same city that the seven sons of Sceva were traveling around in. You know that story? Let me blow your mind again. These seven crew, seven brothers that were Jewish were running around trying to cast out demons. And here's how they would do it. Uh, I cast you out in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches. That was their line, right? And the demons are like, oh, no, and they'd all flee away. Well, then at some point, the demon's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? No, no, no. I know Jesus. I know Paul. Who are you again? And it says that man who was possessed leapt upon them and they all left naked and bleeding. In other words, didn't go so hot for that guy, right? That crew just got beat up. Okay, weird exorcisms are going on in this city. There was a huge amount of magic going on, the occult. And we know that because even the Christians were heavily involved in it. Finally, Paul said, you guys, it's garbage. It's, it's satanic. Get it out of your lives. Bring it here. We're going to have a huge bonfire. And that's where that whole concept of bringing everything into the center of town and burning it all up. That's where it came from. And everything was going extraordinary. As a matter of fact, it says as he was arguing in the synagogue, everyone had an opportunity to hear about the Lord. He had this tremendous ministry all the way until one guy ruined everything. That guy's name was Demetrius. Demetrius was an idol maker. Now, when you hang out in a town like Ephesus that worships the great goddess Artemis, you guys ever seen a picture of her? Gnarly looking, okay? Crazy person. She's a fertility goddess with all kinds of creepy stuff on her, all right? If you're in that town and you're worshiping all these different gods, you got to have your little baby totem because that makes you a good worshiper, right? So they would make these gold and silver and fancy little totems and everybody would buy them and stick them on their mantle and feel good about themselves. Well, that was a big cash-making business. Now Paul comes rolling in and he says, it's all bogus, all that stuff's idolatry, get out of it. Well, that's going to take some economic hit on some folks. And we all know how that goes. You don't mess with that. So Demetrius tells all his crew, we're going out of business because of this Paul guy, let's get him out of town. So they get a whole crowd together in Ephesus. It even says the majority of people didn't even know why they were at the riot. Everyone's just bored. They're all hanging out there. And he says, people of, of Ephesus, who do we serve? Artemis, yay. He said, all right, Paul is here saying that Artemis is bogus. Is that what you want? Well, they began to chant. It says, for two hours they chanted, great is the goddess Artemis. You guys, I'm bored after like five minutes of chanting. You know, I'm like, I'm going home. I'm not sitting here. They, for two hours, great is the goddess Artemis. They begin to freak out. They're grabbing Paul's friends. They're throwing them in prison. They want to beat up everybody. They're trying to find Paul. Paul has to run for his life. And because of the murderous threats against him, he left the city and never returned. That's the Ephesians. Good enough background? All right. We're in verse one. I wonder if I'll go long <laughs> to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. The word in Ephesus was added later. It's not in any of the original manuscripts. This is a cyclical letter. In other words, you would send it to the big dog church and then they're supposed to cycle it around to all the churches in the area. This applies to you and me as believers. This applies to all the believers of the region. This was written at the same time as Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. He wrote all four letters at the same time from a Roman prison. Fired them out to go to four different locations. The reason why that's important is Colossians 
and Ephesians are very similar. One third of them is the same. So when you read one, you're going to go, gosh, I feel like I'm having deja vu when I read the other one. One fourth is verbatim in Greek. It's the same stuff, but they were written for two different reasons. So that's why there's so much similarity. He said in his normal intro, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through 3 are one long prayer. And, like me, when I was early in my writing, he does one long run-on sentence. Verses 3 through 14 are all one sentence in Greek. That's a long sentence. Okay, I got marked down for stuff like that in school. But he's the apostle, so he gets away with it. It's written to Gentile, non-Jewish believers in this area. And what he does in verses 3 through 14 is extraordinary. He brings in the whole trinity. He explains how the Father planned the church, the Son paid for the church, and the Holy Spirit protects the church. In one short sentence, he gets all that nailed down. And something very, very important that is the foundation for all that he is about to say is he believes that every Christian has dual citizenship. You are of this world, and you're also not of this world. You may be a Messianic Jew. You may be a Christian but who you really are is in Christ up in heaven. And you're just passing through. He speaks on that concept of dual citizenship a lot. And we have to hang on to that if we're ever going to make it through alive. And here is his message, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms where there are no limitations, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many spiritual blessings do we have? Every or all. So how many do you need? None. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Are we all good on that one? It's pretty clear. So it says what? What are our blessings? I have them all listed out in your notes. For he chose us as believers, as his chosen people, grafted into the family of God with the Jews. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. It was not an afterthought. It was always the plan. To be holy and blameless, that means set apart or set aside and pure and faultless, which indeed we are in the sight of God. In love, he predestined us in love. He did it because he wanted to. He loves you. He cares about you. He doesn't have to love you. He wants to love you in love. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with what? His pleasure and will. There's no forcing going on. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Let me explain for a moment what it means to be adopted. In our world view, in modern day America, even still, and I believe this is going away, but there's still a slight sense in adoption where it's a little bit less. That's incorrect. That's unacceptable. As a matter of fact, in the Roman world, adoption was an extraordinary concept, far more powerful even than a natural child. And here's why. It was a huge difficulty to get it done. When you wanted to adopt a child, here's the process you had to go through. First of all, you had to make your case before a council and argue why you get to adopt somebody. 
So the father, the person that was going to adopt, had to argue their way in a court of law as to why they get a child. Then the bio dad then had to symbolically. uh, How did it work? Buy his child, sell it back, buy it, sell it back, buy it and sell it back on the third time. The third time, however it worked, he wouldn't take his child back. But they had scales out there, and they had copper, and they're weighing everything, and they're taking all this serious measure. He had to go through all these hoops just to get this child. Why was it such a big deal? Because at the moment that that adoption was legit, their old family was dead to them, gone. You had no connection whatsoever, for good or for bad. And you received everything of your new family in inheritance in total at that moment. Now, that meant all legalities, everything was attached to you. Do you understand the spiritual implications of what I'm telling you? When we come to Christ and we're adopted into the family of God, your old life is severed from you. You're done. Your new life is total now. All of the inheritance, all the blessings of being part of the family of God are yours instantaneously. That's extraordinary. Yeah, we move on. It says this in him. We have redemption. That's to buy back. We have redemption through Christ's blood, meaning on the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the garbage that's in us, the messed up nature in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Meaning he knew exactly what he was doing. It was in wisdom and understanding he lavished grace on us that we might be free. See, in that day and age, slaves were bought back and that was called a ransom. They were bought back for a bunch of different reasons. In Greek, there are three words that are translated redemption. They mean three different things. The first Greek word is to buy for yourself and maybe resell it. The second word is to buy and keep for yourself and never to resell it. The third word is to buy it and set it free and have no control over it. That is the phrase that is used for Christians being bought by Christ's blood. It says those who the sun sets free will be free indeed. Do you remember that? In other words, we don't owe God anything but gratitude. You see what I'm saying? So now we're not robots. We now have a chance and an opportunity and a freedom to love him. This is not about God holding it over your head. I died for you. You better appreciate me. I'm going to constantly blast you. How dare you sin? You humiliate me. There's none of that negative dysfunctional parenting. We have a complete buyback. To be set free and say, kids, run and be who you're supposed to be. Now, we only find our identity in him. So if we get cut off from him, there is no life. So, yes, we stay near our father. Why would we want to go anywhere else? But we need to understand that grace and forgiveness means that our sins are all gone. Past, present and future. You go, how does that work? Because God is not in time. You all understand what linear means? Linear means there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. It's called following on a one line. God is not on a line. God is outside of that. Therefore, when he does something, he does it in total. So when he died for your sins, he looked at your whole map of your entire life. Your ups, your downs, your, the, the depth of your depravity. I bet you're not even there yet. 
Okay, you guys might sin next year way worse than you've ever sinned before. Okay, he looked at your whole scale of your whole life, looked at the lowest point and said, I got that. Boom, took your whole thing, slammed it to the cross and nailed it away. He has covered all your sins. Therefore, any sins that a believer commits are not put on your side of the ledger anymore. Because first John tells us that when we continue to sin, Jesus Christ is there on our behalf, cleansing us. From all unrighteousness. How about that for freedom? We need to understand that when he died for our sins, his grace is so extravagant, you can't outsin it. Why? Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. It's a sheer formula of scripture. You can't outsin grace. Do you guys begin to feel this weight lifted off you? This is what we live in. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is how our family works. We pick it up in verse 9. And in addition to all of that, he made known to us the mystery of his will. What is the mystery? That it's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles as well. You guys look at that and go, oh, that's a big deal. Okay. I keep this little symbol on my Bible for a reason. Y'all see what it says? It's called the grafted in symbol. Little Jewish menorah on top, little Star of David, and then our little fishies hanging off the bottom. You see that? Okay, everyone goes, it's an ancient symbol. I think it's just marketing. But anyway, I like it. On this little symbol, what does it mean? It means it was really a Jewish thing, and then we got grafted in and adopted into the family. And we need to be thankful for that. It wasn't always open to us. Here's what's hard for me. We keep singing worship songs that say, this is the one we have waited for. Do you remember that? This is what we keep singing over and over and over. And this is Jesus, Lord and Savior. And we all go, oh, that's so touching. You don't know what you're singing. You're all Gentiles that just got saved when you wanted to get saved. The whole thing is imagine being a Messianic Jew for thousands of, and just millennia. You've been waiting for the coming Messiah. He then who you've been waiting for shows up and it's Jesus Christ. Now, that's worth singing for. We don't seem to get that. We keep thinking it means oh, I was walking in darkness and I was waiting for a savior to come and save me. All right, cool. You can make it mean that. That's fine. My point is we need to understand our history if we're going to worship rightly. Because we have no idea how extraordinary it is that we have a Gentile church. God was limiting himself for a long time to the Jewish people. And now he's worldwide. That's extraordinary. We should be thankful for that. And we're still kind of humdrum about the idea. It's because we've forgotten our history. We don't look backwards. He moves on. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. You guys, I'm not going to handle the issue of predestination. I'm going to tell you this. There was always going to be a bride, period. And you know what? We should be thankful that we are included in that number. Amen. Also, it says that why are we saved? For the praise of his glory, Christians are walking trophies of Jesus. We're all shined up and polished and everywhere we go, Jesus goes, look, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one. There's another one. And that makes him happy. You have to understand, just like my two daughters are replicas 
of a bit of, I can see a bit of my image in them. And when they play and when they're joyful, and when they're just screwing around being kids, it makes my heart lift. I came down getting ready for a church last night. I came down the stairs and as I looked down, the seven-year-old was sitting on the chair in front of the computer with a, th- with a three-year-old on her lap. And she was teaching her how to do the mouse. And they were playing games and they're laughing and joking with each other. You know how much my heart soared as a dad? Were they doing anything special? No, they're just being girls. They're just being little kids. But I loved it. That's how God feels about you. When you just do Christian stuff, when you just do regular stuff, when you're sleeping, he watches you. Because you're amazing to him. Why do we forget that? Really, we're going to get caught up in our sin. We're going to allow our sin to dominate our identity. That is done. That's no longer our identity. We are free and he sees us as cleansed. When will we see ourselves as the same? It says this, and you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. What's the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. Did you hear the gospel that Jesus Christ 2000 years ago came to this earth that he's God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried in three days on the third day. He rose from the dead. Have you heard that? And then he ascended back up to the father. And if you put your trust in him and make him your savior and Lord, you might be saved when you believed that it says having believed. And that means trusted, not just understanding facts. Demons understand facts. They're not saved. Having believed, made it true for you, put your trust in. You were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Do you understand what this means? What does it mean to be saved? Everyone uses that phrase, right? You saved, you saved, you saved. It's getting kind of irritating. Are you saved? What do you mean saved? What am I saved from? You're saved from the wrath of God. Wrath? Yeah, there's a big old ball of fire hurling at the earth and it's going to burn you up. Why? Because there's sin. God's going to burn away all the sin. If you're sin, you're going to get burned away. That's called the wrath of God. However, if you don't want to get burned up by the wrath of God, you need to get saved from the wrath of God. That's where the phrase comes from. Because Romans 8.1 says... Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. So if you don't want any sin, you better be in Christ Jesus, whatever that means. You better get in. That's all we're talking about. But there's something more in that passage. It just said that the moment we got saved, at the moment of our conversion, whenever that occurs, I don't need you to tell me when you got saved. I don't even need you to know. I don't think you're smart enough to figure it out. Me either. I think that's a God thing. But when we got converted, he put the seal on us of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is God. Yeah. Therefore, he's not leaving God behind. God's taking God home. And if God is inside you, you're going home. Do you see what I'm saying? He puts in the seal. Now, what's a seal? It's almost like a marking or a stamp on something. In the Roman world, when they would ship out cargo, they would put the Roman seal on it. And what it said was, if you dare mess with this cargo, all the power of the Roman Empire will come upon you. Don't touch our stuff. What do you think we are as Christians? We're God's cargo. Let the enemy be warned. Don't touch God's stuff. If you dare touch one of these little ones, all the power of heaven will demolish you. How about that for protection? Not bad. 
We move on. Verse 15. For this reason, for all these blessings, Paul said, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. What were they known for? But faith and love. Did that love last in the Ephesian church? Unfortunately, it didn't. How do I know that? Revelation 2.2 says that John, the apostle, received a revelation to see heaven. And what did he see? An angel came to him and he said to the church of Ephesus, I want you to write this. I see your hard work. I see your perseverance. You're hanging in there. I really appreciate it. That's excellent. However, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Go back to what I asked you to do in the first place. In other words, it's gone from their joy to drudgery. Does that not sound like a lot of the American church? Get back to being pumped up about it. Get back to the excitement. Get back to the simplistic view where Mary broke open the jar. jar, Do you remember? Of expensive perfume. Get back to the radical love for Jesus because this drudgery gig just isn't flying. It's extraordinary. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And what is his prayers? He prays for them to have four things. What are those four things? I keep asking that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may, number one, know him better. What do we need to do? We need to know God better because then we understand what he's done. What's number two? I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you to. If you don't keep a view of heaven, you're going to hate earth. If you don't understand why we're doing this, you're going to freak out. But if we know the hope, that's why Jesus talks about a peace that transcends all understanding that guards our hearts and minds. It's not about circumstances. Why? Because peace of God is deeper than circumstance. Right? Third thing, what else do we need to know? The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you know what you're getting as being part of the family of God? Because if you forget, you're going to be sick and tired of this. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. When you've made it something other than that, you've gone astray. He says, uh, as fourth, you need to know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That word power is the same word where we got dynamite from. It's called dunamis. The incredible dynamite that we have. You guys go, I don't have any power. I feel powerless. Satan's beating me up. Let me tell you something. Remembering is a discipline. Discipline yourself to remember. Because God was active before and God is active today. We have just forgotten. The Bible challenges constantly the Jews to remember. Remember what I've done. You must choose where your mind goes. You must choose to lock on to the glories that God has given you. And quit focusing on what you don't have. Because you have everything you need for life and godliness. You want to know an example of power? Power that you currently have right now. Let me share it with you. This is a sampling. We as believers have the promise of eternal life. Therefore, we have a powerful hope the world does not have. We have the power of prayer that we can alter things that are otherwise immutable. 
in the universe. We have the power of talking to the almighty creator. We have the dynamite power to talk with the one that knows everything. We have the power to impact people's lives with the gospel of Christ and watch them change 180 degrees. We have the power to see into the future by the word of God. We have the power through Jesus to be saved from our sins. We have the power to approach the throne of God with no condemnation. We have the power to move forward with no unhealthy guilt. We have the power to love people that hate us. We have the power to walk confidently in a dangerous world, knowing that nothing will occur to us or happen to us except that which God allows. We have the power to fight on a spiritual level against powers, principalities and spiritual darkness. That is a sampling of the power you currently operate in right now. How amazing is that? He finishes by saying that power that is operating in your life is like the working of the mighty strength which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly realms. That means you have resurrection power. You have ascension power. That's how extraordinary it is. Far above all rule and authority is Jesus. Power and dominion over every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Listen, where there is a lack of joy, there is a lack of understanding. I hope that we understand a bit more today. That we can leave here knowing how extraordinary it is to be a believer. Do you remember? Do you remember all this exciting stuff? We have no reason to be sad. We have no reason to feel hopeless. There is no reason for us to be lost anymore. We have been found. We have been set free and nothing can chain us down again. Amen. That's why we leave and we know that our citizenship is in heaven and Satan cannot shut us down. We win every time because of who we serve. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and an exciting reminder of who we are as your kids, that we are cleansed, that we are forgiven, that we are whole, that we are right. May we put on those new clothes and get used to them and walk around in them for a little while and begin to fill out that identity in you that we would know that we no, no longer have anything to fear. No longer do we have anything to dread for you have done all the heavy lifting. And now as we come to you on a daily basis, confessing our sins, merely that our feet would be washed because you already washed our whole body. May we have intimate connection with you at all times and whenever we sin. Jesus, praise you for being at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, that we are always blameless in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.